I'd like to invite your attention to the book of Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. This morning we come to something of a transition point in the book of Genesis. Since Genesis chapter 12, we have been focused in on the life of Abraham almost exclusively. And more than just his life, his relationship of faith and obedience with the Lord. But now here in Genesis 24... Genesis starts to shift towards God and his relationship with Isaac. And no doubt, as we look at Genesis 24, Abraham, the father of our faith, is still in view. But Genesis 24 helps us transition from Abraham to Isaac and his future. And so it's the next two chapters that will record for us the last days of Abraham as he seeks to establish Isaac as the recipient of the covenant promises and blessings of God. And so it's in the view of last week, as Pastor JT has already mentioned, of the death of Sarah and now Abraham's approaching death, that there are some questions. At this point of transition, at this pivotal moment in the book of Genesis, there are questions that begin raising or rising in the minds of the reader. What is going to happen to Abraham's descendants after he is gone? Will the relationship of faith continue through his descendants? Will God's work in Isaac, excuse me, will God work in Isaac's life in the same way as he did in Abraham's life? Is God still going to be faithful to his promises after the death of Abraham? And so it's with these questions in mind that Genesis 24 gives us one of the greatest displays of God's providence and covenant kindness in the Scriptures. So if you found your way to Genesis chapter 24, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Beginning in verse 1, the Word of the Lord says, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, who managed all he owned, Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman is unwilling to willing to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? And Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send an angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son from there. if If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me. But don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. The servant took ten excuse me. The servant took ten of his master's camels, and with all kinds of his master's good in hand he went to Aram Naharim to Nahor's town. At evening, the time when women went out to draw water, He made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. 
I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And before he had finished, finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me have a little water from your jug. And she replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. And she drew water also for his camels, while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, and for her wrist two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you, he asked, and please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. And then the man knelt low, worshipped the Lord, and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. May God be praised through the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, I once read a book by Warren Wiersbe entitled Life Sentences. It's now published under a different title. The title is The Defining Verse, but in this book, the author seeks to summarize the life of various Bible characters using one single verse of Scripture. In fact, he tells that he was inspired by this idea from a sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon on Genesis 39 on the life of Joseph, where Spurgeon comments that often in Scriptures, the life of a person is summarized in one verse. Well, for Abraham... Wiersbe chooses Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. And through that, Wiersbe focuses on the life of Abraham as he lives in faith before the Lord, as he lives obediently by leaving Ur and going to the land that he did not know where he was going, and I think that that's a perfectly acceptable life verse or defining verse for Abraham. But if I were to pick a life verse or a defining verse for Abraham from the Genesis narrative, one candidate that would have to be considered is Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
You see, Abraham had been on an incredible journey of faith marked by ups and downs, failures and triumphs. And all of them were used to grow Abraham by God's grace into the man of faith that we see in Genesis 22, who is willing to sacrifice his son, completely trusting in the providence of God to provide a substitute for him. And when the Lord does provide, Abraham names the mountain in honor of the Lord's providential intervention to provide a substitute for Isaac. You see, that's the moment of culmination for Abraham's journey of faith. While he has failed in some ways and triumphed in some ways before, this is the mountaintop, as it were, of Abraham's faith. This was the ultimate test, and through it, he learns to completely trust God's providence over his life. It's from that moment on, Abraham is depicted as the man of faith that God has been molding him into. We saw this last week in Genesis chapter 23. He comes down off of the mountain peak, and the very next thing that the scriptures record for us is the death of his wife, Sarah. The one human constant of his life was gone, and yet he continues in faith, burying her there in the land of promise. And now he's an old man anticipating his own death and thinking about the next generation and Isaac's relationship to God. And here, Abraham completely trusts in God's ability to providentially ensure the fulfillment of his promises. Abraham does not lean onto his own understanding or his own ability, but he trusts in the wisdom and power of God to provide. So the question comes for you and I then, what about you and what about me? Would your life sentence, would your defining verse be anything like that of Abraham's? Are you willing to say the Lord will provide? I'm willing to trust and to rest completely in his providence. Or are you more like young Abraham that we've been studying for the past few months, taking matters into your own hands, seeking to accomplish by your own power that which God alone can do? So there's this challenge to us in these verses to rest and trust completely in the providence of God. And yet at the same time, we understand that it is incumbent upon us as it is incumbent upon Abraham to act in faith and act in obedience. But it's actually our faith and our obedience. These are the means through which God works out his providence. God has sovereignly decreed all things. His providence is at work. That which God has ordained will surely come to pass. And yet my faith, your faith, my obedience and your obedience may very well be the means through which God accomplishes his ordained purposes. You might consider just by way of analogy the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We understand completely and totally of the security of the believer. We know that a person who is in Christ will always be in Christ. Nothing can pluck them out of his hand. And yet, the unplucking, the the impluckability of our salvation from the hands of the Lord will come about through the means of our perseverance in the means of grace. In the same way, we see Abraham living by faith because he believes in and rests in the providence of God. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 24 and consider its purpose is to explain how Isaac acquired his wife, Rebekah. 
And yet for all of the excitement and all the joys of a, of a wedding and finding a bride and engagement and all of these things, we want to remember at the outset that all of these events are set in motion by a man's simple faith in the providence of God. So the emphasis of this chapter is on the providential work of God through the faith of his people. You see, Abraham has come to believe that God will fulfill his promises, that he will providentially ensure the fulfillment of his promises. And as he nears death, he is resting in the providence of God to finish what he had started and fulfill his promises. Now, before we dive into this passage, there's two other things that I want to note. And the first is this, God is the primary cause of events in this story. Abraham is acting, his servant is acting, uh, Rebecca is acting, everyone is doing and living and deciding. But it is God who is behind the scenes directing it all. And the second is this, God is deliberately behind the scenes, yet directing the acts. In this way, Genesis chapter 24 is much like the book of Ruth, or even more so the book of Esther, where the name of God is either not mentioned or rarely mentioned, and yet God's hand and fingerprints are all over the events of those books. He is working out his will and purposes in the lives of those who are recorded for us. One author says this, this chapter reports the hidden causality of God sovereignly working through the circumstances of those who are acting in faith. So if you're following along and taking notes this morning, there's two things that I want us to see. And the first is this. God providentially fulfills His promises through the faith of His people. God providentially fulfills His promises through the faith of His people. It's through the means of their faith. And we read in verse 1 that Abraham is an old man getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. His wife has passed away. He's grieving the death of his wife, and yet the Scriptures consider him blessed in everything. Not in some things, in some ways, but in all things. Not that Abraham was blessed in everything except for the death of his spouse, but in all things. And I wonder if we view the life of Abraham in that way. If we look with natural eyes at the life of Abraham, perhaps we think that his life is marked by disaster, not by blessing. He left his family. He left his home. He buried his father in Haran. He settled into a land living in tents, owning no property of his own. His wife is barren. He waits 30 years for the promised son. And he's even charged by God to send his other son away from him. He's tested by God to offer his only son now as a sacrifice to the Lord. And now his life partner has passed away. We would say that Abraham has had a difficult life. Perhaps we even pity Abraham in some ways naturally. And yet the scriptures say Abraham is blessed in everything. Blessed in all things. Why? Because he has the promises of God. And he knows that the fulfillment of those promises have come already in his life, but they will reach their fruition, their full fulfillment in eternity. He has the promises of God. And yet, for all of his blessing, Abraham knows that his time is almost over. And he knows that for the promises of God to be fulfilled, his son 
would need a wife and he would need children of his own. And so Abraham now leaps into action, but not in the way that we've seen Abraham leap into action before against God's will and out of faith, but he leaps into action through faith to secure the promises of God. Look, at, look with me at verse 2. Abraham says to his servant, the elder of his household, who managed all that he owned, place your hand under my thigh and I will have you swear by the Lord. So Abraham, because of his faith in the promises of God, calls his servant to give him a task. And so it's important to note that this task that Abraham gives him is to swear an oath to him. He has him place his hand under his thigh. I think that that's significant though there's debate about the significance of it i think what's happening there is by placing his hand under his thigh he's approaching nearness to the reproductive organs of abraham which remember back in earlier chapters of genesis was marked by the covenant sign of circumcision this is an oath that's being taken in view of the promises of god abraham just as you have this sign in your flesh we are now confessing together that the sign of the promises excuse me, the promises that are represented by that sign will certainly be fulfilled to the coming generations. And so he places his hand under the sign, under his thigh, calling to memory the covenant sign. And he swears by the God of heaven and of earth. The God who has created all things and the God who governs all things will provide a wife for Isaac. But part of the promise Part of the oath that's being taken is that the servant will not go back, or excuse me, will not take a wife from Canaan. That he will not take a wife from Canaan. Abraham, of course, I believe, knew the prophecy of Noah that Canaan would be cursed. And even more than that, he knows that these are the very people who God is going to dispossess from the land to give it to Abraham. So this wife cannot come from these people. These are the people whom God is casting out of the land for his people to take the land as a sign of his blessing upon them. But Abraham also knows that he himself is not supposed to leave the land. He's made that mistake before. He left the land to go down to Egypt and in other ways. And so he resides and remains in the land. Nor can Isaac go out of the land as a sign of his unfaith or disbelief of God's provision for him. Therefore, he sends his servant in belief that the Lord will provide a wife for Isaac according to his promises. But the servant naturally raises a concern. What if this lady doesn't want to go with me? What if I find a suitable candidate, but she doesn't want to go with me? She hasn't met Isaac. She doesn't want to go and be with Isaac. And so Abraham even responds in faith to this. Look with me at verse 6. Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send an angel before you, and you can take a wife from, for my son from there. And if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me. But don't let my son go back there. 
Abraham was completely confident, living by faith, that God is going to do exactly what God said he was going to do, that he was going to make uh, an innumerable people of his descendants, and that this offspring, these people, would inherit the land in which they reside. Abraham is confident that God is going to providentially provide a wife for his son Isaac. This is the God who took him from his father's house and has made promises to him and has shown himself faithful. Abraham is confident that the promised line, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, is going to be completed. But it's not going to come from among the Canaanites, but from Abraham's own family. And if this woman is unwilling to go, Abraham is trusting that God will provide through other means. Just as he provided for Isaac on the mountaintop, the Lord will provide. Abraham believes this, and he insists twice. In fact, it bookends Abraham's speech to his servant. My son must not go back there. Do not let my son go back there. He must not return to our family. He must live in this land according to the promises of God. And so the servant takes the oath in faith with Abraham, He himself is a part of Abraham's household. He himself has received the covenant sign in his own flesh. He believes the promises of God too. And so he places his hand under Abraham's thigh and he takes this oath. And we see God's providence begin to play out in the life of Abraham and in the life of his son Isaac. Abraham is acting by faith because he believes God is going to provide. God providentially fulfills his promises through the faith of his people. Abraham is not acting in disbelief, but he's acting in belief. He is really actively, willingly acting because of what he believes about God. And it's through that faith, because of what he believes about God, that God is actually going to accomplish his purposes. Abraham sends his servant, and through that servant, God is going to provide a wife for his people. And so, dear church, as we think about this, how much more should we be willing to rest in the providence of God and to live by faith in his promises and live by faith in his word, knowing what God says is good and right, trusting That he will work through the ordinary means and ordinary things in our life to accomplish his purposes. (coughs) One author says it this way. There will be no miracle in this story as we usually think of miracles. There will be no rearrangement of molecules. No sun standing still. No healing. No river stopped up. Rather, God will bring about the acquiring of Isaac's bride through the normal events of life. The delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. As J.R. Packer says, believers are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes at and each event, excuse me, comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. Dear church, everything that happens in your life is an act of the providence of God working His good purposes in you and through you. God is working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. This is the way that God works in our life. He works His sovereign will in us 
and he accomplishes his purposes by our faith in his word. We live in faith knowing his power and his providence in our lives. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who is working his promises in us. One author says this, the God of Scripture is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally injects His power into life. He is far greater because He arranges all of life to suit and affect His providence. This makes all of life a miracle. God is over all. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-controlling. This is the God of Scripture. Anything less is an idolatrous reduction of our puny imaginations. Dear church, we serve a big God who is doing more than we could ever ask or think, who is doing more than we can see and know in our suffering, in our sorrow, in death, in loss, in all things. We are blessed in all things. God is working according to His purposes in our life. And the challenge to you and I, dear church, is to believe that and then to live by faith. And the good news is that as we live by faith, God will actually accomplish those purposes in us through our faith. God providentially fulfills His promises through the faith of His people. But there's a second thing that I want us to see this morning. And it's this, God providentially fulfills His promises by guiding His people. God providentially fulfills His promises by guiding His People, living by faith does not mean blind obedience or oblivion to God's will and His ways. You see, the servant sets out on a journey. He goes to the town where he knows Abraham's family lives. We read of him traveling to the town of Nahor. This was Abraham's brother. And there he sets himself up in a place where he can discern the will of God concerning a wife for Isaac. And we read as he arrives there at the well outside of town, he prays in verse 12, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And he responds, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And so we hear, we hear now this prayer of the servant as he's seeking the guidance of God for him as he seeks to do what God has decreed to be done. He prays for guidance. He prays for God's providence. But one author says this, what's remarkable is that in keeping with the passage's emphasis on providence, the servant did not ask for a miraculous sign from God. Rather, he sought guidance in the regular way, the ordinary events of life. He prays that he would be able to discern the will of God through ordinary means. Some would compare this passage to Judges chapter 6. We read there in Judges chapter 6 of Gideon laying out a fleece and that uh, on one evening the fleece would be wet with dew and the ground, the ground around it would be dry and on the next evening that the ground around it would be wet and the fleece would be dry and it was through this that Gideon began to discern the will of God for him. But this isn't exactly what 
this servant is doing. He's not asking for a supernatural sign, and he's not asking for a supernatural confirmation of the specific will of God. Rather, he is devising a test to determine God's will concerning her character. This is a test of the woman's character, that she would be a godly woman, a generous woman, a hospitable woman, willing to minister to a stranger that she does not know. And so in doing this, he's seeking a woman that would be a suitable candidate for Isaac. And he's trusting that through that, God will bring a woman to him that is of the proper family and of the proper house. But there's another thing that we notice about this prayer. The servant is depending upon the covenant kindness or the covenant loyalty. Some of your translations might read steadfast love of God. There's a word there in the Hebrew language that is used throughout the Scriptures to refer to God's kindness, loyalty, goodness, steadfast love, His faithfulness to His promises. It's the word that we read over and over 26 times earlier in the Scripture reading. His steadfast love, His covenant kindness, God's compassion upon His people endures forever. And it's that promise that Abraham's servant is resting on. God, show your covenant loyalty. Be faithful to your promises for my master Abraham. And so he prays, and then he sits and waits. But we already see God's providence on the move because Rebecca has already left her home. She's approaching the well, and just as he finishes speaking, Rebecca's going down to draw water from the well. And he leaps into action. He goes and asks his question, giving her the test that he had orchestrated in his own mind and asks God to bless. And Sarah, excuse me, Rebecca responds. She passes the test. She responds, offering to allow him to drink from her jug of water and then to water her camels, excuse me, his camels also. Now, there's actually a more commentary than you would expect on how long it took her to do this and how many gallons of water she had to draw to uh, take care of 10 camels. Needless to say, she was there for several hours and she had to draw several hundred gallons of water. There was an intentionality of generosity on her part. She was willing to go above and beyond to serve this man. She shows herself to be a woman of character. And it's through this that the servant of Abraham begins to discern that this may be the woman that God has ordained for Isaac. And so he sits there and ponders. Verse 21, he watches her to, whether, to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. And after the camel's finished drinking, he gives her some jewelry as a blessing for the service that she has done, but also, I think, to open up an opportunity to ask further questions about who she is. And she volunteers her family, and she, she knows, excuse me, she lets him know that there's room for him to stay, and the servant begins to rejoice because God has indeed blessed his journey. He has found someone of Abraham's house who is of suitable character for Isaac. And so he rejoices. The man knelt low, it says in verse 26, worshiped to the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. 
And it's in his prayer of thanksgiving that we see the providence of God all over the life of Abraham, over the life of Isaac, over the life of Rebekah, and over the life of this servant and his journey to the homeland of Abraham. He says there that it is, he says, as for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. He sees and understands that the Lord has led him all the way, not in some supernatural, far-fetched way, but in what he was looking for, a woman of character of the house of Abraham. He has found it. The Lord has brought her to him. He's been faithful to Abraham. He's been faithful to Isaac, and he has blessed the journey of this servant and so he bows low he worships and he gives thanks for what god has done he has indeed not withheld his covenant loyalty his covenant faithfulness and so dear church as we consider this second half of the passage of scripture and as we consider how god providentially fulfills his promises by guiding his people the first application that i want to draw here is actually over the question of marriage There are some things that the Lord indicates for us in the scriptures concerning marriage. First of all, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, but also that they are to marry in the Lord, that two are to be believers and not unequally yoked. And so for you young people in the room, there may be temptation for you one day to marry someone who is not a believer, someone who does not know the Lord. But this is a call to you to trust in and rest in the good promises of God that his provision is there for you. And perhaps that provision is singleness. Perhaps God may call you to that, but rest in that God knows best not to go outside of God's bounds and ordination for marriage. But I think there's another challenge regarding marriage for us in here. And I was actually helped by an illustration from another pastor. Many of us, I think, perhaps approached or approached or approached the dating relationship, like, oh, I think that person is really attractive, or I think these people are really attractive, and so I'm going to pick the most attractive people that I know, and then pick the most godly one among them, and try to pursue a relationship there. But what this other pastor was trying to say is that we should actually do the opposite. There's a place for beauty. This woman, Rebecca, she's described as beautiful, that she was attractive to look at. But what we should actually look for in the dating relationship and in our spouses, dear children especially, is actually you should look for the most godly people that you know. And then if there's one among them that you're more attracted to than the others, I think you have freedom in the Lord to do that and to approach that relationship in that way. But dear church, you who are already married, give thanks to God for the godly character that you see in your spouse. Give thanks to God for the godly ways, the the ways that God has worked in their life, just as God worked in the life of Rebecca to make her a woman of character. This is God's providence in your life. This is the fulfillment of God's good promises in your life. And with the servant of Abraham, we can rejoice and we can give thanks in that. This is something worthy of rejoicing over. But finally, as we think about God's provision of a bride for Isaac, this points us to God's provision of another bride. Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for his son Isaac. But God would provide a bride for his only begotten son, not by sending a servant to secure that bride, but he himself would go. 
He would take on the likeness of humanity. He would take on the likeness of sinful flesh. And He would come to secure her Himself by dying to redeem her. He would go to find a bride who was not already marked by godly character, but was dead in trespasses and sins, who was not worthy of His consideration, and yet He set His love upon His bride, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would redeem her and save her. He did not send a servant for her, but He went to the cross Himself by God's providence and foreordination. Just as God ordained that Rebekah would be at that well that day and that that servant would come and find her to bring to Isaac. So the Lord God ordained that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God would go to the cross. We read in Acts chapter 2, though He was delivered up according to the God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail Him to the cross and kill Him. The Son of God come to secure His bride by the foreordained providential plan of God. He would go to the cross and die for His bride to save her from His sins. And the charge to us is, on the one hand, if you're in Christ, to rejoice in that, that your bridegroom came for you, that you who are not a people are now a people because you have received God's mercy in Christ. You were of the kingdom of darkness, and now He's brought you into the kingdom of light and made you a part of the bride of Christ. Oh, what providence of God to do this for you. But if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus in this way, that is the only means of salvation. You're not a person of character. You have nothing in you that is worth looking at by God or by Christ. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and he preached the verse that I just referenced to you in Acts 2 about the foreordained plan of God to kill the Son of God for the salvation of His people, at the end, people cry out, oh, what are we supposed to do? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who accepted his message were baptized. Those who repented of their sins and believed the good news of the gospel. Those who believed that God had foreordained a plan to save sinners. That the death of Christ was no accident. That His going to the cross was not just evil people killing an innocent man. But it was by the hand of God that He has come to save His people from their sins. If you would believe and repent of your sins, you too would be made part of the bride of Christ. Secured forever in His hands. Unable to be, un- to be plucked from His hands. <coughs> Dear church, as we consider this passage of Scripture, let us be reminded afresh of the goodness of the providence and the sovereignty of God. He is at work in us and He is in work through us, even though we don't always understand, we may not know what God will do for us or through us. He is at work by his providence to fulfill his promises. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this passage of scripture and we pray that our faith would be strengthened by it. Lord, we pray that as we act in belief, as we act in obedience, we pray, God, that you would accomplish your purposes through us. And we pray that you would guide us. Lord, grant us wisdom. Help us to live for you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.